I really appreciated the time Gwen took to talk with me by phone. Her first child, a boy, was typical, so when their second child was born with microcephaly, they were shocked and surprised. Because they were told there was a 25% chance of having another child with microcephaly, they were watching for any issues with the third pregnancy. That baby was diagnosed at 24 weeks with microcephaly. And they were encouraged to abort the pregnancy because, as the medical professionals said, they already had enough on their plate. They chose not to. I am sure you will find Gwen's story interesting and inspiring. It turns out that both babies had aspergine synthetase deficiency, or ASNS for short. It was ASNS that caused the microcephaly. Thank you very much for taking the time to meet with, uh, with me uh, over the phone to talk about your two daughters. Why don't you tell me, when, when did you find out that your children had some issues? Well, actually, we had our first child um, when my husband and I were like 22 and 23. We were pretty young, and it was a son, and he was born typical. So we had no reasons to be concerned that we had any type of a genetic condition to deal with. And so when we got pregnant with our second child, um, we found out it was a girl. When she was around 19 weeks, we had a normal sonogram. Everything came back completely within normal limits. And so when she was born at 39 and a half weeks, she actually made it to term. Um, the doctors noticed immediately that her head was pretty small and that she had some clonus with her arms. And they were pretty concerned and called in all the specialists at that point with her just to kind of give her a thorough exam. So because we had her, then when we had our third child, we knew that there likely could be a genetic risk. They, they didn't know. They couldn't find the genes. We'd been searching for about four years at that point to try to locate genes and there had been none found at that point and they you know we had had some doctors say it could just be an isolated incident and we had others say it's probably genetic we kind of didn't know what to believe but they told us to sort of plan on a 25 percent chance of recurrence so we felt like we could handle whatever came our way and honestly sort of thought it wasn't going to happen again and so we did serial sonograms with our third pregnancy with Lola from about five weeks on, and we had a normal sonogram at all of our visits until we got to 22 weeks. And at 22 weeks, they said, okay, we've got a little bit of an issue. Her head measurements are about two weeks behind, but that could be still within normal limits. We're not sure. I mean, two weeks ahead and two weeks behind is still considered normal, but obviously we're watching head measurements pretty closely, so there is a chance that this could be something starting to happen. We need to watch it and track it. So they told me to come back in a month. So we went back when I was 26 weeks pregnant, and they said, you're either going to see that her head is caught back up and she's not going to be microcephalic, or you are going to see that her head is further behind. And we'll just have to see what the sonogram shows. And the second that they put the sonogram on my tummy or the, the little, I don't even know what it's called, wand, the second they put the wand on my tummy, I, I instantly knew. I mean, I just, I didn't have a degree, but don't think that I didn't research it a million times over. You know, I knew exactly what numbers to listen for and look for, and I knew instantly that it happened again. So they confirmed microcephaly for her at 26 weeks, and her head was then five weeks behind. What type of advice uh, did the doctors give you with these two pregnancies? Or what? 
Well, the first pregnancy, we had no reason to believe anything could happen because there was no history on either side of my, of my husband's family or my family of any type of issues whatsoever. So we didn't have risk factors. I you know, had her at a hospital, at a birth care center. Um, I had Claire at a birth care center. And it was a very normal pregnancy. I didn't worry. I mean, I was super cautious. I ate organic. I didn't paint my toenails. I didn't dye my hair. I mean, I just... I did what I would have done, you know, what I did with Cal, and I took my prenatal vitamins, and I went to all my appointments, and I was, you know, super careful and cautious with the whole way, and there was no reason to believe anything was going to happen, and I, you know, had a pretty uneventful labor, and she was born, and instantly everybody freaked out. So I didn't have any advice my first pregnancy, well, with my first daughter, I should say. Okay, so, so then with the first one, it was a total surprise when she was born that she had some issues. Yes, complete okay. surprise. But the second one, they knew uh, they had done some testing and found out then that, that, that she did have some issues, similar issues, uh, in utero. Okay. Yeah, that came about um, 20, 22 to 26 weeks into the pregnancy, which perfectly explained the reason that our first daughter, Claire, had had a normal sonogram at 19 weeks. We couldn't figure that out after she was born. We looked back at the 19-week sonogram. We tried to see... You know, we were working with a perinatologist, you know, tried to see if there was something that got missed. And honestly, everything was completely within normal limits at 19 weeks. And apparently, you know, it was within normal limits for Lola as well because I had a normal sonogram at 18 weeks with her. Mm. So it, for us, uh, happens later in the pregnancy. Um, half of the second half of the pregnancy is where it became increasingly obvious that we had microcephaly to deal with a second time. Did they counsel you any particular direction with this second pregnancy when they found out that you had another child with, with the same issues? Um, you know, I talked to so many different people. What ended up happening was we worked with a perinatologist for my second daughter's birth. So we already knew, you know, we had this 25% chance or up to, we were told up to a 25% chance of it happening again. So they, they had us start working with a perinatologist, and he was really helpful through the whole pregnancy and very positive and very encouraged by what he saw up until 18 weeks. The kicker is 18 weeks happened right before Christmas, and he announced to us at that visit that that would be his last visit with us because he was moving and taking another job across the country. So we tried to see if another perinatologist would accept us. There was only, I think, maybe one other one in town at the time, and she refused to accept new patients. And so we were kind of up in the air. And But the way he left it with us at 18 weeks when everything was still looking good was, you know what, I think this is the best Christmas present you could ever receive. Everything looks fantastic. So we were just happy-go-lucky. I mean, we just were thinking everything was great and it didn't happen again and everything's going to be fine. So when we went to our next visit, our OB said, well, since the other perinatologist won't take you, we'll just, you know, I'll just have you go to a sonogram lab and then we'll have the radiologist or whatever read the report and then I will advise you after I talk to him. You know, we've done this before lots of times. It's really not that big of a deal. Um, you're still going to be getting expert opinions about what's going on. 
And so that was a little weird for us because here we were in a really crucial point of our pregnancy, you know, thinking that everything's okay. And so we go to our 22 weeks thinking nothing's up, you know, it's going to be fine. And so when we go and they say, oh, well, the head's two weeks behind. The first thought I had was, well, it's a different sonogram equipment. You know, it's a different place. And the, the sonogram honestly did not look as clear. Like, Scott and I both felt like we were looking at Atari graphics or something because it was so, it was, like, primitive. It just was very vague. And I felt like the one that we had used with the perinatologist was super clear. You could see everything. And so I sort of felt like there was a little bit of room for error here. And I, I remember saying to the OB, I'm like, these sonogram pictures are not that great. I don't know what's going on. He said, let's go back for a second opinion. So we went to a different place at 22 weeks, and they said the same thing. They're like, nope, we're getting the same readings. And so then we were like, oh, my gosh, does this mean something bad is happening? And our OB just said, you know what? You know nothing. You know nothing at this point. And we tried to see if they'd let us come back in two weeks because I was like, there's no way I can make it a month. There's no way. That'll be the longest month of my life waiting to see what the next result's going to show. And they're like, well, it's going to go one of two ways. It's either going to be better or a lot worse. So it was the worst month ever, waiting and waiting, just to try to get any answers whatsoever. If it was happening again, we just tried to stay so positive. And so when it was confirmed when we went back, it was pretty devastating. I mean, both Scott and I were, you know, it was like, I don't know if I've cried that much in my whole life as I did that 24 hours after Lola was diagnosed. It just felt so unfair to have to have gone through it again and we you know we didn't have any reason to believe it would happen again they still hadn't been able to confirm that it was genetic we really truly thought we had a 75 percent chance or greater that everything would be fine so when we were diagnosed i remember going back to my ob and he basically just said you know you guys have been through an awful lot gwen you have options you know and i'm not going to judge you whichever option you make but i would encourage you to check out every option you know he wasn't pushing anything on me one way or the other. He just said, the best advice I can give you is to put yourself into both shoes and do your research and talk to people and make phone calls and consider every single option that's out there because this is your life. You know, this is your life. You've already got a lot on your plate. You have a four-year-old daughter that has a, you know, pretty profound condition. And adding another daughter with a very profound condition would be life-changing for you. And I just want you to, to feel like you've explored every option thoroughly. You obviously chose to have that daughter. Yeah, and I did exactly what he said. I um, actually live in a town where there was a pretty famous doctor who did perform abortions who I knew personally because I went to school with his daughters. So I knew him and I knew what kind of a person he was. And I knew that option was certainly one that was out there to, you know, for me to, to have. And because he was well known, it happened, it just so happened that when I found out that we were going to have another child that was affected, kind of people came out of the woodwork a little bit like you know we've been through something similar and here's the decision we made and I talked to those people and I asked questions and I went to their website and I read you know the, the testimonials and I actually called the office and I remember just being completely horrified and it was I remember somebody telling me there that making this decision to terminate the pregnancy was one of the most quote loving things that I could do for that child and all I could feel was, I'm playing God. I am making the decision to terminate the life of a child that could bring me the kind of joy that Claire's brought me. How is that loving? I mean, I could be missing out on a child that ends up doing more than Claire's able to do, or that 
you know, brings even more joy to our family. And who am I to play God? I was given this child for a reason. Why am I trying to change this path, you know? And I'll be completely honest with you. I, you know, consider myself to be pro-choice. And I always have my whole life. And so when I'm in the situation personally to make that decision, it felt like the worst decision I could possibly make. It's weird how I, I just, when it's your body and it's your baby you've loved for 26 weeks and that you feel move every single day, all day, every day, and that you have all of your hopes and dreams pinned on. I mean, it, it's actually wasn't that hard of a decision to make. I mean, both Scott and I felt like it was 100% clear on what we should do. And I told the lady off and I hung up and I said, we're having this baby. And Scott and I both agreed. And it was like the, the tides turned. I mean, it was like I went from bawling 24-7 to feeling hope. And, like, I was supposed to be these girls' mom. And I was finally embracing that, you know, fully and and being the mom that they wanted me to be. That's a great story. I'm Now, tell me, what is the diagnosis and what and how does it manifest itself in your daughters? Is there other well, type? There's lots of different things that this particular diagnosis causes. Tell me about that. Right. Well, just this past September, I believe, we were actually completely shocked that we got results back from whole exome sequencing. We had given blood to two different research hospitals. Well, one was a genetics clinic and one was doing research. And they said, you know, it could be a month or six months or five years, or we may never get answers. We don't know what to tell you, but we're hoping that we're going to find something. And so they called me about three months after we had given blood at a Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, and they had said that they had found the gene responsible for our girls' condition. So we had gone through their whole lives for 15 years saying, okay, well, our daughters have microcephaly. That's their primary diagnosis. And it's still, I still sort of feel like it's kind of their primary diagnosis, but apparently the whole exome sequencing said that the girls have a gene that's affected. It's the ASNS gene, and it causes asparagine synthetase deficiency. That's a lot of big fancy words, but basically all of the symptoms that my girls have, and then some, are symptoms of asparagine synthetase deficiency. And from what I'm learning, it is a spectrum disorder that can affect kids either more mildly or more severely. Our daughters happen to be on the more severe to profound end, and we asked questions at our genetics appointment about other kids that would be similar to our girls, and basically we were told that the children that were more similar to our girls had already passed away and that the girls were basically paving the way for kids with this diagnosis and that they would probably be wanting to know more information down the road about how we had cared for the girls, um, you know, medicines, vaccines, diet, um, treatment methods that we had done because they felt like the girls were kind of pioneers a little bit, you know, for being a little bit more severely affected. Um, since then, I started a Facebook page for asparagine synthetase deficiency and we have, we have members. We have new members. So finally, um, I've been able to connect with some other families who have kids who are sort of similar. And pretty much the common diagnosis is microcephaly. They all have microcephaly. So that basically just means small head, small brain. The variance between how the brain is affected varies from kids. So 
Some of them have just a small brain that's very normal and functions pretty well. And most several of these kids that I've met walk and talk, but it's limited. And they didn't do it until they were older. And they've had a lot of physical therapy and struggles along the way. Um, other children have brains that are more severely affected that don't just have a normal brain that happens to be small, but also brain malformations. And that's where my girls fit in. And they don't walk and don't talk, but communicate in their own way and are working on you know, physical therapy skills so that they can learn to use a walker possibly. And Claire, our daughter, has been working on that. It's been really exciting. So um, they're kind of paving their own way as these other kids are doing the same. And so it's something that I think is probably underdiagnosed and kind of like autism, it's going to run the gamut from kids who maybe on outward appearance don't appear to have a disability at all, all the way to kids who are very profoundly affected and who don't survive the first year of life. So our girls fit in there somewhere towards the more severe end. And some of these other kiddos I've met are kind of, you know, mild to moderately affected. And they have daily struggles that I can't even wrap my mind around. And we have daily struggles they can't wrap their mind around. So it's been really neat, though, to connect with these other families and see the similarities. Um, something that's been really cool is there was um, something mentioned to me when we went to the genetics appointment about whether or not my daughter's startled easily to loud noises or even to quiet noises. And I said, oh my gosh, this has been something we've dealt with since the beginning. It's out of control. I mean, you can basically, they can hear a pin drop three rooms away. They're just very, very, very hypersensitive with their hearing. And so that was one of the first questions I had to ask the other moms was, do your kids do this too? And they said, oh my gosh, yes, it's been such an issue since they were born. So it's little things like that that we're finding. You know how nice it is to have another family who understands what we're going through. Sure. Now, so how old are your daughters now? Claire is 15, and Lola will be turning 11 in about a month. So you've had many years of, yes. of uh, caring for your, your daughters. Yes. Um, you've mentioned several things already, but I'm just wondering if you could would add things that, you, that have been particularly difficult or hard um, in, in caring for your daughters. Um, there's a few things that um, outsiders might look into and say, oh my gosh, that's huge. One of them is epilepsy, seizures. And most people are absolutely horrified and scared beyond belief to see seizures because to them it's, you know, a sign of the brain mal malfunctioning basically. And, and I know that they're dangerous and I know that kids have died from seizures and I've watched friends' children die from seizures and it's absolutely horrifying and absolutely terrifying as a parent to see your kid do it. And I remember remember when Claire had her first seizure, she was about three months old, and that scared the crap out of me. I was absolutely, I, I couldn't even function, and I was like obsessive about writing down every single little thing that happened, the time it happened, when it started, when it stopped, I had to get, you know, get to a clock as quick as I could so I could time it, and I wanted to be able to say you know, every single little thing that occurred with it. Um, and over time, I began to realize how much I was focusing on all of the things that were wrong with my child and all the things that were going wrong that you know medical the medical community would look at and say okay this is this is a flaw with your child this is something that's not right and not normal well every single thing about my kids aren't normal <laughs> be honest we have very few things that are still normal left and you know seizures I was terrified and what I finally realized after a little bit with my daughters and their particular seizures that I see currently and I'm not saying that those will never change and that I don't have fears and risks and I don't still you know every time I see it get a little shudder of like oh I wish I didn't have to have these I do but what I started doing was not making it such a big deal in our lives because for us our girls were not going backwards they were not losing skills they were not regressing they were not turning blue they were not stopping breathing we weren't 
weren't having to give oxygen or rush them to the hospital. In fact, what we saw after the seizures was a little strange because what we saw was more awareness. And it was almost like we could equate it to their brains trying to work and trying to like connect. I don't know, the messages or neurons were firing and it was like we saw more awareness and we saw better eye contact and we saw the girls being more interactive after they had the seizures. And so for us, it wasn't such a negative thing. And I quit writing them down and I quit notating all of them. And I know it was like we'd be out in public and we'd be with somebody and, you know, one of the girls would start to have a seizure or make a sound or, you know, smile. That's what our girls do a lot when they have seizures sometimes sometimes smile and they'd be like oh look she's so cute what's she doing and I was like well she's having a seizure and they're like oh my gosh do you want me to call 911 and I'm like no no we just we just ignore them because I mean we're not ignoring them we're right there we're holding them we're making sure that they don't cause them to, to spit up but they're such a tiny portion of who the girls are it's such a tiny little part of, of the whole of who Claire is and the whole of who Lola is that for us it was just sort of um, something that we didn't I guess, give as much attention to. That being said, I've worked since Claire was three months old and Lola started having him around 18 months to try to find some natural remedies that would help lessen the seizures. And we've done better at trying to to lessen the seizures using some natural things. And that's been really exciting to see um, some progress because I do feel like sometimes the seizures interfere with sleep for Lola and with development for both girls. And so that that's definitely my mission to some, I'm continuing to try to conquer because I cannot use prescription medications with the girls. And so I have had to go a more natural route, which actually was more familiar for me anyway, and um, try to find some answers. So seizures is one thing that I do want to conquer, but I don't fear them now. Like I just want to optimize my girls' lives. Tell me, what is a typical day for you? Well, there's nothing typical about any of my days, nor are any two days the same. Um, We are (laughs) typically atypical. I don't know. Um, The girls, I can't say that that nighttime is normal because they don't sleep steadily. Um, Claire sleeps a little bit better than Lola, but she still wakes a whole bunch of times and she just has the gift of being able to settle herself a little bit easier on her own, whereas Lola requires to be held pretty much all night. Um, And we do monitor for seizures at night because we do see, I think, more seizures at night with Lola. Her sleep is definitely an issue, Lola's. She sleeps anywhere between, I would say, like three to five hours a night on average. Some nights less, some nights a hair more, maybe six is like the most I've ever seen her sleep in the last couple of years. And that's not all at one stretch. We're talking an hour or two at a time, and that's a good night. Um, usually it's 20-minute stretches um, the whole night. So if we do not have a nurse here to watch the girls, we are getting no sleep. So we tag team the nights, my husband and I, and sometimes occasionally I'll have a babysitter that's able to step up and help, but that's not that common. So night times are rough if we don't have a nurse here to stay up with Lola. So we wake up in the mornings and eight-ish and Lola's best time to sleep is between like eight and 11 in the morning. We have no idea why she sleeps best from eight to 11 in the morning. And that's not consistent, but that's on the whole, she sleeps better from eight to 11 in the morning. The tricky part is we have therapy in the morning. So we have PT and OT, speech technology. Um, We have a vision therapist that comes and we have two teachers that come. So that's like seven people that are trying to come Monday through Friday, every single day. And they all come between 10 and 11-ish. So We usually end up waking her, which usually results in her having a seizure because she's finally gotten into a deep sleep. 
which she couldn't get into the whole night. So a lot of times therapy is a struggle because she's agitated. We've been known to let her sleep through therapy if she's, you know, been sleep deprived for a while and miss it, which I don't like doing very often. We maybe only do that once every few months. Um, but they, we usually try to get them involved with therapy between 10 and noon-ish. And then they're exhausted and they sleep sometimes or they don't. <laughs> for a little bit afterwards. And then um, we usually are holding Lola for most of the, the day, the rest of the day in the evening and monitoring. She still eats on a newborn schedule. So we're feeding her, you know, every, I would say every three to four hours. And Claire is fed every two to four hours. Um, we alternate water and food for her. And so in between, we're trying to um, make fresh um, food for both of them. If we can, I'm also um, trying to help with our business. My husband owns his own business, and I help um, run the business three days a week just for a few hours, maybe a total of like 13 or 14 hours a week. And so I have to cover myself with babysitters so I can go help with our business and then get back home and uh, just be a mom. <laughs> so we try to squeeze in stuff for our son, too. In the evenings, a lot of times he'll have basketball games or practices or we go with him to the gym or we hang out as a family and watch TV or go somewhere, eat dinner, whatever. So try to have as much normalcy for him as we can. Um, we've always tried to do that. And then, you know, we're a pretty close-knit family, so we just like spending time together. So tell me maybe a little easier question. Um, <laughs> what are the joys that you've experienced with these girls? A lot more joys than I thought were possible. Um, I think the joys have come in little packages, like things you wouldn't expect, um, inch stones, not milestones, I've said before, um, just, just seeing increased awareness, seeing increased eye contact, seeing the girls respond to their environment and to us, seeing them smile at things that we say that are funny and, and they have an appropriate response. Um, it's been a joy seeing them progress super slowly with their therapies. And I know most people would look at it and be like, I don't see any progression. They're not walking. They're not crawling. They're not sitting up independently. I get it. But when you have a child that for 15 years couldn't sit and have trunk control on your lap at a 90-90, you know, with their, their body and their legs at 90 degrees on your lap, and then you're able to hold their hips and they're able to hold themselves up and maintain good head control and look at their environment and interact with their environment and make choices with their head or hands, I mean, that's huge for us. I mean, most of the world might look in and be like, well, but they're not doing what matters, which is walk. Well, Claire's been in her walker, and she's figuring out that she can move herself now. She's not taking steps. She's not running. She's not trying to get from point A to point B at this point, but she's learning. She's figuring out that when I push, I move. When I move, they cheer for me, and when they cheer for me, I smile, and this is fun to see. I mean, that she's progressing in that way. Lola is a little slower um, than Claire right now at this point. Um, she's uh, The gains we're seeing with Lola are more cognitive, I think, than they are physical, and she's paying better attention to her surroundings. I mean, little things like passing her from me to our babysitter, Tracy, and her looking to see who's got her, you know, looking at their face, and then when Tracy says, oh, hi, how are you? She smiles at her. I mean, that for us is such a joy to see because for a decade, 
we didn't see anything like that. And so we're, we're starting to see some things connect. The girls making connections, um, they both are working on um, a program called Eagle Eyes, which is a communication device, and they're able to, uh, it basically tracks eye movement, and the girls are able to make choices on a screen with using eye movement. And so we're hoping that that's going to open some doors for them as well, which we're starting to already see them being able to activate a like a target by looking at a target, which causes a, um, a song to play or something funny to happen or a face to appear. I mean, so they're getting they're getting cause and effect and they're starting to figure that out and that's been really exciting to see too. So tell me, what impact have these two girls had on your family or immediate family, friends, neighbors? You know, it's pretty exciting to see our whole community kind of band together to accept our family. And I don't just mean like our immediate little town that we live in, but, you know, we live in a suburb of um, the biggest city in Kansas that has about 450,000 people, Wichita, and people in the community know the girls. Um, we sold some Claire and Lola bracelets to try to raise money to buy the Eagle Eyes program, and I see people wearing those. You know, I see people posting pictures all over the world from a lot of different countries, and that's really exciting. But our community itself, like the school where our son attends, that community has completely, completely embraced our family and our girls. They have basically opened their arms to us. People see us all the time and ask us questions. They they are happy to reach out to our girls. They know who the girls are. They're proud of the fact that they represent, you know, the school that our son attends and our community and our town. You know, we try to get them up on the Jumbotron when we go to, you know, games to local basketball games. And, you know, the girls are, are kind of well-known around here. And I love the fact that people aren't afraid now to come up to us and ask to talk to the girls. And they aren't afraid to reach out and talk to the girls and touch the girls and talk about, you know, things that they saw. And, you know, the girls have been in the media a little bit, so, you know, people have seen those interviews and, and people are really um, touched, I think, by the girls' lives and inspired by, I guess, their desire to be here and to, I don't know, give hope to other families who are in similar situations. So it's just been really, really neat to see everybody kind of come together. And the bonds definitely have been strengthened in places and weakened in others. And that's not all a bad thing because I think it kind of weeds out people who maybe can't handle it as much or aren't okay with it as much. And, you know, while that's hard to see, it's also one less person for me to have to deal with, I guess, that can't handle what we're doing. And if they can't, then, I, you know, I don't need to be around negativity anyway. So it's been, it's been really enlightening for, I think, all of us. But I would say overall, the resounding emotion has just been support and love for our girls. And my whole takeaway message of sharing the girls' lives is for other people to not be afraid to reach out to special needs kids in their communities. You know, and those families need that. I mean, you know, too, it feels good when people embrace our kids who are different because so many people are really good at elbowing their friend and pointing and whispering and making awful comments or whatever they do. But for us, we don't pay attention to any of the, ne the negatives. We focus on the love because there's so much of that and the support and, you know, the stuff that we've gotten from not only our community, but our friends and family. And it's just, I feel like it's united us more, if that makes sense. It does. Now let me let me ask you a, another question. If I came to you with the results of a of a prenatal checkup that where the diagnosis uh, was was similar to that of your daughter's, mm -hmm. what advice would you give me? Well, you know, I actually. <laughs> 
I wrote a blog post on this very thing about maybe a year or so ago, um, and I am actually confronted by parents like this all the time. I'm probably talking to two or three right now um, about this very thing. You know, oh my gosh, my kid just got diagnosed with this. Their head's measuring small. I'm scared to death. I want to. I want you to help me. And it feels really good to me to be able to reach back out and give these parents what I wish that I had at the same point in my life, and that is to just tell them that they can do this and that they've got this. Um, it's scary as hell, not going to lie. It feels like so much unknown that you almost don't know how to forward. You feel like you can't trust your mommy instinct. You feel like your choices have been taken away almost, like you just have to do whatever the doctors tell you to do because it's such a scary thing and nobody knows what's going to happen, and so you've got to really lean on somebody else instead of trusting your own gut instinct. And I, I just want people to know that they can trust their gut. They can trust their heart. We still are the people that know them the best. I mean, they were in our tummies for months. You know, we we loved them before anybody else even knew them. You know, we're, we're so closely tied to who they are, and it matters so much to us. And I think we need to absolutely trust our heart in this whole process. And, I mean, that's what we tried to do back in the day, but it was scary, and I remember feeling like I couldn't do it. And I just wish that somebody had told me that there was a lot of kids who do defy odds. You know, there were kids that were, I mean, there's people that have microcephaly that are living, you know, into their 70s and 80s. And I wish somebody had told me that. I wish somebody had told me that you could have a child that is very profoundly affected, that could live a quality life with, you know, being an important member of society who's valued and respected and loved and cherished without ever having walked a step or spoke a word. You know, I wish somebody would have told me that back then, that I could still be happy and I could still find joy in the life that I had. And that maybe there was a chance that this life wasn't an accident, that I was supposed to be this mom. So I just wish somebody had told me that in the beginning. And I try to really make that point to these new moms that, you know, this life is special and perfect and wonderful exactly the way that it is. And that, you know, having these kids and thinking outside the box and not doing things exactly the way that you would with a typical child is basically upping your mommy game. (laughs) It's making you a better person. It's making you stronger. It's uniting your family. And it's helping your kid to know how much they're loved and how important they are to you. So I just really want people to know that they can do it and that, you know, that they just need to believe and love and find joy in every single day. That's terrific advice. One last question. Sure. Any regrets? Zero. Zero regrets. I would do it exactly the same way a million times over again. Thank you uh, very much.